Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today, where you will learn about what it means to be truly alive, an exploration of the ideal human experience. My first guest is Ami Dar. He is the founder and executive director of Idealist.org, a website that connects people who want to do good with opportunities for action and collaboration. Idealist serves more than 120,000 organizations and more than 1.4 million visitors each month. Last year, they launched Idealist Days to encourage people to work together in a spirit of generosity and respect to help build a world in which all people can lead free and dignified lives. So, Ami, I've fallen in love with you already because of what you do, and I'm so grateful to share your work with our listenership in the world. Thank you. Thanks for being here, because first question I want to ask is you didn't always do this. What did you do that led you to this, to become an idealist? Ah, God, I didn't always do this. Well, so I was born in Israel, and then when I was seven, uh, my parents went off to Mexico for different reasons. My dad worked for the UN there. I grew up there. I spent my, my from uh, second grade to ninth grade uh, growing up in Mexico City. And ever since I would think I was like eight or nine years old, I think I was a little bit of a sort of social justice freak. I started asking my parents, why is it that I see kids begging in the streets when we have food at home? And, you know, why, 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 why is there sort of all this obvious injustice? And I think I imagine that at first it was sort of cute when they when I asked after a while, you know, I'm not sure what, what they could say. That sense stayed with me. Uh, we then went back to Israel uh, for high school, then I had to go to the army for three years. And there I saw more things that, that sort of, I guess, the, the world would be radicalized me, but made me feel that some things needed fixing out there. And so the question was, was how? And so I, after the army, I went traveling, backpacking for a couple of years in uh, South America on my own, trying to literally figure out what to do with my life. I felt that I had been given this thing, this life, and what, what do I want to do with it? And I was, I was traveling in the mid-80s. I was, I was meeting lots of people, local travelers who wanted to do something about what they were seeing around them, but didn't really know how to start. And so one day I was um, hiking in, in the south of Chile, and I had this, this flash of intuition where I suddenly I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to find a way of connecting people who want to do good with each other and with ways of doing good. Uh, the problem is that I, I was 24. I had no money. I knew no one. I knew nothing. But I felt this is what I'm going to do. And I've never looked back. So I Went back to Israel. I was a waiter for a while. I was a translator. Then a friend started a, a software company, and he hired me to be his international marketing manager because I could spell in English. That was my big uh, asset. So uh, I did that for a while. And then the web was invented. And when the web was invented in 92, 93, 
uh, I saw it for the first time and I thought, wow, this thing was invented just for me. Now I can actually connect people uh, in ways that are interesting. So that was uh, a lot of material very quickly. But basically, before this, I didn't really do much. Essentially, I, I was a waiter. I was a translator. I worked for a you know, software company for a while. And I dreamed about how one could change the world. And then the, the web came along and, and I thought, okay, with this, one can at least start. You know, this is, reminds me of Tiffany Schlein's documentary, Connected. Have you, have you watched that film? Yes, a long time ago. But yeah. Yes. And that the idea that the internet can be a force for good or it can be a force for evil. And the fact is that there are a handful of people or more than handfuls, buckets fulls of people who are trying to bring people together through technology. Share a little bit about what happened to you when you were in the army. I think you call it your sock sharer story. Yeah, I think people people sort of call it that. I think what, what, what happened was that, um, so this is Israeli army where uh, all Israeli men at the time had to serve for three years. Women had to serve for two years. So I started the service and about a year later, I was in a situation that you sort of see in movies. I was uh, on the northern border uh, of Israel with Lebanon and Syria. And my job was to um, be on a, on a watchtower over, you know, barbed wire minefields uh, with a telescope uh, alone on this watchtower. And spending, I think, eight hours a day sort of looking across the border if everything is okay, if there's anything unusual. And, you know, I was bored and I was just like looking uh, across the border for hours. And so I, I was daydreaming. And then one day I remember um, sort of laughing out loud at a, at a thought that I had. And the thought was that in the previous months, getting to know the, the guys in my unit, and I think later on I realized, you know, this happens to us in life all the time. I realized that, that some of them were people that I would just, you know, trust with my life. And others, uh, not so much. I didn't really want to have anything to do with them. And the way that I sort of classified them in my head was that some of them were the kind of people that would give me their last pair of dry socks if I ever need them. And there were some guys <laughs> who might steal my socks yeah. if I wasn't careful. And uh, so, you know, you have the sock shares and the sock thieves in my head. And so that day I was looking across the border and uh, far away in this valley across, across the, the barbed wire, uh, there was a group, a unit of, of Syrian soldiers that I could see through the telescope. And I guess they had a few hours off, and they were playing. Uh, they were playing soccer. I could actually hear their laughter and playing, sort of coming up the valley. And there was something about them playing, about uh, the laughter, that humanized them in my eyes in a way that that was sort of suddenly very new and fresh and different. When you grow up in a conflict zone, or I think in any polarized situation like we're seeing in the states today, um, it's natural, I think, for everyone or for each side to sort of dehumanize the other. Yeah. And so you grow up with a sense of, oh, they're, they're Syrian soldiers. They're not exactly human beings like us. And that moment, uh, they became entirely human in my eyes. And suddenly I thought, wait a second, wait a second. In that unit, if I were to join it, I'm sure that there would be some guys who would also share their socks and others who wouldn't. Uh, and so this fence that's dividing us right now is sort of going the wrong way. In, what if instead of having, you know, arbitrary sort of random Israelis on the one hand and Syrians on the other, you had all the sock shares on one side, all the good guys on one side and the others on the other. That would make much more sense. I'd be, I'd be happy to join that fight. So yeah. <laughs> um, that was this moment. And then, of course, I laughed, you know, because it was sort of childish but also true. And then, you know, later I realized, I learned as I grew up that it's not so simple, that, of course, the division between, quote, unquote, good and bad actually runs within each of us and not between us. And yet I was left with a sense that all over the world, you have a group of people that you recognize when you meet that share a certain approach to life, a certain moral taste, basically, and that we all want some really basic things uh, that we all have in common. 
And it'd be wonderful if those people could somehow work together. So that's really been the rest of my life since then. Well, let's talk a little bit about the meaning of an idealist, because people often will say to me, you know, you are Pollyanna. You you look at the world as the glass is half full, you know, and the world is filled with pain. It's filled with darkness. It's filled with war and evil. And yes, that is true. There are aspects of that. But the idea of living by one's ideals and believing with faith and hope and optimism and hard work that it could be better. If we didn't have that, then what? Exactly. I think you, you're so, I mean, you're so right. I mean, sometimes, you know, I joke with people that we, because, because that's my, because that's who I am. I joke that we picked the word idealist.org for our website because cynic.org was taken. So what the hell I took idealist, but no, I think that, you know, I deeply, I deeply believe in certain ideals. And I think what, what happens, I think we live at a time in an age where it's sort of unfashionable, you know, like it's so, it's so much easier to strike a pose, right? To be the cynic, to be, you know, to have a curled lip, to say, oh, you know, that's not going to work. And it's easy and it's, you know, fashionable. But do you really want to be that person? I mean, don't you want to actually believe in something, uh, in something bigger than yourself and something that you hold to be true? And I think most people do. And so I think we live in a bit of a tyranny where the cynics sort of, you know, dominate and, and, and people are afraid to talk about things like love and dignity and freedom and generosity. And yet we know that, that that's what makes us human. And what is the point of, of living without believing in anything? And so, yes, absolutely. I think, you know, I'm out and I'm proud. I'm, 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 I'm proud of it. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think of if, if we didn't lead by love, if that wasn't the pilot light that drives everything else for Pollyanna's out there like me, idealists like you, I think it would make life really dour and unhappy because life isn't always happy. No, of course, you know, the bad things will happen, right? I mean, of this course. is not to, you know, not to, not to rain on anyone's party, but I mean, we are going to die. And before we die, most of us are going to be sick and people who love are going to be sick. You know, there's this wonderful Israeli uh, poet, Yudami Chai, who, who said something about how every love story Every love story has a bad ending because even if you have a wonderful partnership, one of you will die first, right? So every, so yes, stuff will happen. Bad things will happen. And in some ways they happen every day. Who do we want to be to counteract that? Just basically, you know, snide and cynical and superior and smug. Or do you want to say, no, no, I believe in certain things and I'm willing to stand for them. And that's what makes me human. Without that, I'm not really a human being. I'm just something else. Uh, me at least, you know, I think mo- actually most of us. Uh, most of us, I think, want to be called to something bigger than ourselves. And so I think, yeah, I think most human beings have that within them. Children certainly have it. And then sometimes in some cases somebody squashes it or kills it. But it's there. The idealism is absolutely there. I want to just go continue with that theme of happiness because the, you faced many challenges in your work, in your life, that make it perhaps hard to legitimize happiness. Well, I don't know. Happiness, you know, happiness is such a personal question, right? Or it's a personal, you know, what makes you, what makes you happy? So it's also, it's, I think, I don't know, I think it's hard to talk about this without talking about cliches. So, you know, one obvious thing I think is that people who compare themselves to others will never be happy. And unfortunately, we live in a, in a society where that is very common. You know, the, the downside of meritocracy is that we, we rank people. And people compare themselves to other people. So if you constantly, you know, look at, at what penthouse is higher than yours, then, you, you know, you'll never be happy. 
I think happiness has to come from the inside. And I think, again, it's a cliche, but I think the Freudian thing about happiness being about work and love absolutely, I think, is true. To me, place also matters a lot. I want to wake up in a beautiful place uh, on a beautiful fall day. That makes a big difference. But I think, you know, friendship, I know the, the, the ancient Greeks and Romans already knew this, right? Friendship, conversation, love, art, beauty, you know, love, work. That, that's really sort of it. And, and try to every day find those, those moments. And then hopefully that adds up to a sense of contentment. And sometimes, no, sometimes the challenge is part of it and overcoming the challenge is part of it. So I don't know. I think it's, it's totally great to strive for it and to be the best friend you can, the best partner you can, yeah. do the best work you can. And I think happiness is a result of that, hopefully. I agree with you. You know, the older I get, the more I realize that the striving for it is uh, not really the vehicle to the actualization of it, right? It's the it's the journey. It's the connections that we make, the simple pleasures that yeah. we are able to appreciate every day. Those people that that touch us in, in very odd ways, you know, like you, you and I, we, we've just met and I... And you've made my day, you know, because like, oh, there's there's someone out there I recognize. I don't know you, but I know you. And that gives me great happiness. Exactly. And I think also absolutely that. And then, you know, I said, you know, comparing. I think another thing I think just I was thinking as you're saying the words, the small pleasures, I think that in terms of the small pleasures, uh, multitasking, I think, can be a huge enemy of those small pleasures. Uh, If you you know, like a cup of coffee or if you like a cup of tea or if you, you know, enjoy your breakfast and you really want to feel, you want to feel the taste of that coffee in your mouth when you have it. Yes. Then if when you have that first sip of coffee, you're also looking at your phone and reading the news. I talk about myself. That sip of coffee won't be the same by definition. My, my attention is divided. And so I think in that small way, there are certain kinds of sort of modern multitasking that actually get in the way of those small pleasures that then add up to a wonderful day. And you could almost like methodically go through your day and kill those small pleasures until nothing is left. And your day was just blah, because you killed your own small pleasures. Let's take a break. Let's not dilute the joy. But to learn more about the work of Amidar, please visit www.idealist.org. On Twitter, at Idealist. Facebook is Idealist. And Instagram is Idealist underscore Org. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Stay with us for more joy and idealism. Hang on just a minute here. Before we go to the break, I want to talk with you about how lifelong learning boosts creativity and human happiness. It's true. It's true. Research has proven that the happiest people are the ones that are curious and passionate types who love learning, creating, and experiencing new things that keep the mind, body, and spirit alive and flourishing. Today's episode of Harvesting Happiness is brought to you in part by Skillshare, igniting and fueling the creator in everyone. Skillshare is an online community of makers and knowledge seekers with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative, professional, and entrepreneurial skills available on demand. So whether you want to gain new expertise, pick up a hobby, or challenge yourself to get outside of your comfort zone, Skillshare offers tons of opportunity to expand and grow. I've got a black thumb that I'd like to turn green, so I'm taking Happy House Plants with botanist Chris Satch from The Sill to learn how to keep my plants alive for more than just a week. 
Creative expression is essential to my happiness because it keeps me engaged with life and allows me to be fully present when I'm working with my hands. What I love about Skillshare's unique virtual platform is that it also allows and encourages online engagement with my teachers and fellow students. I like to see what others are making and share what I've created. So why not join me and millions of other students on Skillshare? For a limited time, listeners of Harvesting Happiness get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering listeners two months of unlimited access for free. What are you waiting for? Go grab some free happiness over at Skillshare.com slash HH. Get inspired and grow at Skillshare.com slash HH. That's Skillshare.com slash HH. Now here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Ami Dar, and we're talking about what it means to be truly alive, an exploration of the ideal human experience. Let's return to that conversation. Ami Dar's organization, Idealist.org, received an award, and he was noted as one of the most influential people in the nonprofit world. And I'd love for you to talk about that for a moment, Ami, because I don't think that that's what drives you. When we were talking about meritocracy in the earlier segment, I don't think that this is why you show up. But <laughs> what, no. what was that like? Oh, it was very nice. I mean, it was one of those things where we didn't even know what was happening. Suddenly somebody notified me and said, Oh, you know, we're this magazine called Nonprofit Pro, and you've been selected the Nonprofit Professional of the Year. And I thought, okay, that's very nice. If my mother were alive, she'd be happy, and I hope it gets us some more traffic and more interest. Uh, but that's pretty much as far as it goes. <laughs> Let's go back to, to the challenges of being an idealist. Because the world is a, in a very complicated state at the moment, you know, you look at all of the issues, political, climate, and go on and on and on, and I don't want to take the show in a different direction. But being an idealist is challenging for many. Yes, yep. I think that it is challenging. I think, again, like we were saying earlier, I think for me, it's the only way to be. I mean, it's also a question of how you define it, right? So some people define idealist as pie in the sky, dreamer, etc. For me, an idealist is someone who wants to help build a world where all people uh, can lead free and dignified lives. And I want to do something to get us there, yeah. uh, hopefully in the spirit of generosity and respect. That to me is an idealist. And I couldn't really conceive of another way uh, of being. And I think also, you know, it's interesting when you look back at history, um, we identify with certain people, right? We identify with the abolitionists, with the suffragettes, with, with, with people who fought for freedom and dignity for more people. And I see those as, you know, my people. I was born into a certain country, a certain nation, but I also have this other nation of people all over the world who I can identify with based on their values and what they actually did in their lives. So in that sense, I think there's a very rich tradition there also, which can keep us going. Yeah. You have a Facebook group entitled Idealists of the World, and you've got Tens of thousands of folks over there that are having a conversation about idealism. What are some of the stories that have been shared that have made you, your heart swell? Well, well there's two things. There's a group of people there, yes, about 45,000 people in this group, Ideals of the World. And what they do is, uh, with them and through them, 
We organize these uh, monthly days of, of action and solidarity that we call idealist days. They happen on the um, date of the month that is that month. So seven seven eight eight nine nine ten ten etc. Just very memorable. And so we use that group to organize and inspire people to take all kinds of action, any action they want, uh, on those days. And then we also have interesting conversations. And one, I don't know why, one, one thing that came up when you asked me this uh, a few months ago, um, I asked them if they remembered the first time in their life when they witnessed something that they felt was an injustice, something that was wrong. And it was fascinating. There were maybe 700 replies, comments, stories. And what was interesting was that almost everyone um, put it at somewhere between five and seven years old. That was sort of the consensus, that somewhere between five and seven years old, people saw something that felt uh, very wrong to them uh, and unjust and unfair. And then I think what's really fascinating is what happened when they told their parents and here you really see people dividing into two big yeah. groups. Those whose parents who were lucky, and it's not their parents basically encouraged them in their feeling and in wanting to do something about it. And then those who went to their parents, and their parents basically uh, squelched it by saying, well, you know, that's the way things are, or mind your own business, or it didn't happen to you, so what do you care? And it was so important to me because through that conversation, I really learned in a sense how, how this works in the world, right? How in every family, every day, there is this ongoing conversation where you can turn your kids into kids who care about the world and want to do something about it, or you can really basically kill that and turn them into little selfish cynics. Yeah. And it's or, up to the parents to make that decision almost, or to at least go in a certain direction. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to also say, or worse than the selfish cynic is the indifferent one, because the indifference yep. means that you you know and you are making a choice. The doing nothing is an actual choice. Exactly. And so I think feeling so strongly how parents have that huge power when the kids are, I was talking to my wife the other day about this, you know, hypothetical case of, um, you know, little Jane comes back from school and she tells her mom, you know, something really weird happened in class today between the teacher and, you know, Annie. And so as a parent, you have so many options, right? You can call the other kid's mom. You can maybe call the teacher. All the way to, you can tell your kid, well, it didn't happen to you, so why do you care? Yeah. And I think as a parent, that is how you're going to essentially set your kid for life in a certain direction. Uh, and that is such an important choice that I think all of us make every day. Well, and I think it's the difference between uh, being, um, you know, a servant leader, which is, in a sense, we are all servant leaders, right? If we really want to be happy, we figure out the best way we can use our talents and just give them away, you know, share. Yes, there's nothing, and there's nothing to you, there's nothing lost to you by giving what you have to others in that sense, you know, talents, ideas. I mean, what do you lose by, by sharing what you have? Nothing. No, we have everything to gain, which takes me to your logo. I happen to think your logo is quite beautiful. It's a very um, uh, image of a what I call uh, watermarked or watercolored uh, circles that are uh, very holistic and uh, organic, and you've offered the logo to anybody who wants to use it, which is a bit unique. Yes. So basically, the, that came from uh, so the logo is, is sort of a yellow circle surrounded by a green circle and then a blue circle or vice versa. And basically, the idea here is that um, I mean, sort of seeing what happened with the recycling logo and the success of the recycling logo, seeing what happened with the rainbow flag in the you know gay and lesbian uh, movement. And, and realizing that right now, idealism, uh, or even more specifically, freedom and dignity, don't have a logo. And so what if they did? What if by simply seeing a logo somewhere on a wall, on a shirt, on a window, you would feel, oh, those are my people, and they want the same thing yeah. as I do. 
And so what we're trying to do now is basically say, you know, if all of us can just agree on three simple things, that we all want more freedom and more dignity for more people, that we can represent that visually through a very simple logo that anyone can draw and make their own. And that once a month, at least, we will do something, however small, to push those ideals forward, then there's so much we can do, I believe. There's so much energy we can release. So that's essentially what we're trying to do right now, to push those three ideas forward. Some values, a logo to represent them, and a day a month to turn those values into action. If we can agree on that, we'll be on a good path to something better. And there are millions of people who come to your site each month that agree. <laughs> we hope so. They're, they're coming now. They're also coming to the site right now because it's sort of it's known as uh, the best place in the U.S. to find a job in the nonprofit world. So we have one audience that's coming to us every day to find jobs at nonprofit organizations exclusively. And then we have this other audience uh, that we're building on Facebook of people that want to make the world a better place. Of course, those two audiences can overlap quite a bit. Uh, in two or three weeks, we'll be launching a new website, a new version of the website that will really unite both. So you'll see it all in one place, which I hope will be uh, useful to people. So this is do-good dating. It's do-good dating, yes. <laughs> you know, it's really, uh, you, you know, someone has a skill or a talent that they want to share, that they want to contribute to making the world a better place. An organization has uh, an event or needs help or needs participation and that and the, the two sets meet. That's exactly where we're heading, yes. And I think it's important to emphasize that I think every person can contribute something, even if it's only, you know, a smile. I mean, you can always do something for someone if you want. You can just smile at someone in the street if it's appropriate, and that's that's also a good thing. Like, everything is useful. It's all uh, social and emotional capital. Yes, absolutely. Ami, thank you for joining us on the show. This has been such good fun, and I, I, I urge everybody to jump on over to idealist.org to check out what's going on there, that Facebook group, Idealists of the World. If you are questioning how to use your idealism for the greater good, well, now you know how. To learn more, you can also connect on Twitter at Idealist, on Facebook, Idealist, and Instagram is Idealist underscore org. And my guest today has been Ami Dar, the founder. Thank you so much, Ami. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Here comes the break. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about what it means to be truly alive, an exploration of the ideal human experience. My next guest is Chad Gabriel. He has been with the Tuthill Corporation for more than 17 years and is known as their Sherpa of purpose. He oversees developing partnerships with other organizations to help further Tuthill's purpose to wake the world. This was the catalyst for the documentary series, squarely placing Chad's role as both host and interviewer of individuals around the world in the search for aliveness. And for those who don't know, 
The Tuthill Corporation has been around for more than 125 years and makes invisible products that makes the world a better place. And Chad, welcome and please tell us more about this. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me today. Very excited to be here on the Harvesting Happiness podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> let's that, harvest some happiness. Well, let's harvest some happiness. One of the things that you told me that Tuthill Corporation does is manufactures parts for Hershey's chocolate manufacturing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one always, always catches the, the ears of, of people. So, yeah, our, our pumps are used in all kinds of industrial applications, things that people don't see every day because they're you know, usually a component of a bigger system in a, in a, in a pro in a, sorry, in a factory or in a plant or a process that we don't get to see. And yeah, Hershey's is one, you know, think about chocolate. It has to be pumped at a certain temperature. It's thick. Uh, it's gotta be pumped at a certain rate or it'll taste different. And so, you know, we, we like to say that we make real things that really make a difference. And, and a lot of people love chocolate for one, but yeah, we also make pumps that pump fuel. We, we, we serve markets that basically grow with the human population. So medical, construction, agriculture, water, food and beverage, those types of markets, for example. So as the Sherpa of purpose for, <laughs> I love that, Sherpa of purpose. Thanks. That's so cool. <laughs> what inspired you to create this series? So every year we set goals as an organization and, you know, we have this document, we call it our compass. It's the, it's the document that guides everything we do. It's, it's the goals we set. It's the people we hire. It's how we're reviewed. It's not just, you know, what we do, it's who we are as well. And so Tuthill's culture is centered around aliveness and helping people to really unlock the aliveness that exists within each of them. And, and so as we're heading into 2018, we started to talk about how do we take this concept of aliveness beyond our four walls? How do we expose the elements of aliveness to people that normally wouldn't have access to things like leadership development, you know, just people that are, you know, in the living rooms of the world um, and, and really just to start that conversation and maybe even change the conversation around the dinner tables. And, and that's really what was the catalyst for it. Um, one of my team members had done a documentary before, so it took a little bit of the risk out of it because like here we are, an industrial manufacturing company, and it's like, what are we going to be doing doing a documentary. We've never done this before. But luckily, the director, Vito Pelicano, who's on my team, he, he'd done one before and it was really well done. And so, I, you know, I was like, we can do this. We can absolutely do this. We're going to need help along the way, but we'll figure it out. And, that, and that's really what started the whole thing. In the, developing the series, The Search for Aliveness, you had the support of the company. And I want to talk a little bit about the fourth generation of Tuthills that really is behind this project. Yeah. So Jay Tuthill, he's our chairman right now. He is the fourth generation Tuthill family member. The fifth one is in the business. He's currently one of our line of business presidents. But Jay Tuthill, you know, back in 04, you know, Jay, Jay made a stand. He, he got some feedback from a coach that he had that he, you know, maybe wasn't having the impact that he wanted to have. And he really wanted to change the environment at Tuthill. And so at that time, they, you know, I was here and they, they started to develop a curriculum about you know, consciousness. And, and it's really about awareness and responsibility. And so that curriculum started for the leadership, the managers, and then we made it available to everybody. Um, and ultimately, you know, that, that really had to do with Jay's heart for human dignity, you know, having folks get the most out of life. If you think about um, a manufacturing environment, you've got a lot of employees, a lot of people who work in a factory because it's closest to home. It's the solid paycheck. It's what mom and dad did. It's what everyone in the community does. Um, and maybe not realizing the fullest potential. Um, and so they get there, they're working in a factory and, and they just, 
it sometimes lose aspiration to think think about other types of opportunities they might have. And so that's a part of why why we're doing this. And and like I said, the other part of it is just that human dignity. I mean, folks don't generally take the time to spend thinking about themselves because we're so busy and so distracted. And so, you know, that that really began the the conscious company culture that we do inside of Tuthill. And as that's evolved, we started to really talk about it as aliveness. You know, it's, it's so much more than just awareness and responsibility. And that's something that's been very important to Jay Tuthill. You know, think about the economy in 08 and 09 when we were looking at ways to save to save costs and not have to lay off as many people. You know, the, this was put on the table as an option to say, hey, we can reduce costs. This, these retreats, this leadership program, is, is, it's expensive. And he's like, no, this will be part of us forever. Yeah. Move on. Next. Yeah. Which is amazing. And I think raising awareness for this search for aliveness, you know, this quest of feeling as though we are operating as our best selves goes for any level of employee or team member. I mean, this is not just reserved for the elite management. This this applies to everybody who contributes to a company, no matter what they do within the organization. Absolutely. 100% true. Um, let's talk about the recent release of episode five, featuring two professional skydivers. Absolutely. So when, when we started this documentary, we made a list of perspectives that we thought would be really interesting to explore when it comes to aliveness. And one of the one of the perspectives that came to mind was that of the adrenaline junkie, because so many people, when thinking about aliveness, they think about happiness and joy and excitement and adventure first. Um, you know, throughout the series, we're we're big on promoting the fact that it's the full range of human emotion, sad, angry, scared, happy, excited, and tender. Well, but, but we, we still wanted to get this adrenaline junkie perspective to see what what's their take on life and, and aliveness. And, and so, yeah, we headed out to Utah. We're, we're headquartered here in, in the suburbs of Chicago and um, went out to Utah to to actually interview a couple guys who one, – one is a GoPro bomb squad guy, so he's paid by GoPro to go out and jump off of high places. And, and the other guy is a veteran who – actually takes disabled veterans uh, for jumps because they can't do it on their own. And he'll jump into places like NASCAR events and, and big arenas, you know, from the sky, if you've ever, ever seen that happen, uh, carrying the American flag, for example. So we went out there to really explore why, why do they do it and found out that it's really not just about the rush. They're very calculated. Uh, they're very thoughtful. They're both family guys. And they really want – they do it almost because they're trying to just – remove fear from their vocabulary, you know, by they, they talk about in the episode, just say yes, you know, and so many people don't try things that could potentially lead to something that they love or something that makes them feel alive because of fear. And so that was really the start of that conversation with those guys. And, and ultimately, yeah, I jumped out of an airplane with them. And uh, so did Vito. I said, if I'm doing it, you're what? doing it. And, yeah. <laughs> How that, was, that was it? First time. <laughs> it was, it was wild. It was totally wild. And, and, you know, for me, it was, one of those things, I loved roller coasters growing up as a kid, and I still do. And I was expecting to have that, you know, that stomach feeling like, whoa, we're going down a hill. And that wasn't there. So I was a little, uh, a little surprised that that didn't exist. Um, but the roller coaster that did exist was the one that led up to the jump. You know, the, the conversation with my family, like, hey, this, this documentary is something we're serious about. I think I'm going to jump out of an airplane to, to try it firsthand. And, you know, just those that, that, that heartfelt conversation between, you know, my wife and I and my kids and, you know, the moment leaving the house that morning, like, oh my gosh, here's some big hugs. Are these the last big hugs? You know, it's like, yeah. oh man, I could die. So that was a roller coaster. And then obviously, you know, the moments right before it was like, you know, oh, there's the airplane. It's getting real. Um, 
and uh, you know, the equipment, I hope it works, all that stuff. And, and then, you know, jumping out, it was just like so loud, so chaotic, couldn't even breathe. It was crazy. And, um, and then the shoot popped and it was like serene and quiet and tranquil. And it was just uh, an overall amazing roller coaster of an experience, all emotions for sure. And then I landed and I was like so happy to be on solid ground again. So it was cool. I'd recommend it if you, you know, if you've ever thought about it, trust that you're jumping with someone who's done it thousands of times. You know, that, that was the case for the guys we jumped with. And uh, there's a lot of redundancy in those packs, a lot more than I ever thought. And I, of course, I was asking all those questions. So <laughs> I bet, I bet um, you were. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. It was great. But when we go back to Mike Seminoff and Marshall Miller talking about facing their fears, that, uh, you know, I think that what I hear people say is it's not that they don't have fear. It's just that they're dancing with the fear. They avoid, yeah, they'll avoid things that scare them, essentially. And so instead of saying yes or maybe, it, it tends to be a no, it's uncomfortable, right? And so they talk about, you know, the mentality of how can I switch from a no to a yes mentality? And, you know, Mike, Mike Seminoff described it as, oh, I'm kind of a yes man. And he said yes to some things that he would never have otherwise said yes to if he had not intentionally had that mentality of let me just say yes to a few things and see where it takes me and it's opened a bunch of doors for him in his career and and in life so it's just really cool to hear that that's inspiring for me and when we talk about leadership development becoming our best selves if we don't say yes to some of those things that stir fear within us we will never have the opportunity for the growth because the growth doesn't really reside in that comfort zone exactly exactly yeah, we, we do an exercise here at Todd Hill where we talk about comfort, learning, and panic zones. And it's so cool. You know, the comfort zone, yeah, there's not a lot of growth and development there. The, the learning zone, there is, because in that in that mindset, you're, you're in a place where you're thinking, I want to develop, I want to grow, I am curious. Then there's the panic zone, which is just outside the learning zone. And I think the idea here at Todd Hill, and I think also with what Mike, Mike and Marshall were sharing, was stretch even beyond your learning zone into this occasional moment of panic. But when you do that, make sure that you have support. And in this case, it was, you know, I'm jumping out of an airplane. That would, If I was doing that by myself, it would be sheer panic. I wouldn't even know what my name was. <laughs> but because, because I had that support of the tandem, you know, instructor on my back, it's like, okay, now I have that support literally to help me pull the chute at the right time and, you know, know when to jump and how to do it safely. So I tried something that I otherwise would not have. So there's something really important there about comfort learning and panic. And Stretch into panic. Just make sure you have support when you do it. Um, I think that's a really cool idea that, you know, applies at, at work, too, you know. Outsource support. Here comes the break. Let's take that quick pause, and then we'll come back to talk more with Chad Gabriel about the Aliveness series. To learn more, please visit www.thesearchforaliveness.com, on Twitter at Aliveness Series, on Facebook, the page is The Search for Aliveness, and on Instagram, the search for aliveness as well. And there is a trailer available at the website, the search for aliveness.com. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. 
but we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to my conversation with Chad Gabriel. We're talking about what it means to be truly alive, an exploration of the ideal human experience. So, Chad Gabriel, Mr. Sherpa of Purpose. <laughs> you love that title, don't you? I do. I so love it. I, th- I think you need to make a T-shirt, Sherpa of Purpose. I think. Oh, man. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. The, or, whole, the whole idea behind it, everyone always asks, It's if you're curious. I'm curious. Go. So, so the Todd Hill's purpose is to wake the world. And we talk about reaching 7.6 billion people in the world. That's a heck of a climb. And so when I formed my team last year, specifically a team that's formed to, to, to wake the world and all the activities that are involved with that, including this documentary, I was like, wouldn't it be cool if each of the titles had to do with mountain climbing? Cause it's a big climb. And so, yeah, I'm leading the journey. That's where the Sherpa comes from. And I'm on it. Uh, and then I've got a team, you know, there's a base camp operations person who's like a program director. There's an explorer and then uh, like a scout and belay, which is kind of like logistics and outreach stuff. So that was the idea behind it. And, and it is a catchy one. It's a great conversation starter. Believe me. It definitely is. Let's talk a little bit about upcoming episode six, which stars Holly Seminoff, which I am assuming and I don't want to make huge assumptions. There's some relationship to Mike, the skydiver. Okay. They are husband and wife. Yeah, they're, they're sometimes described as Utah's power couple. Yep. And Holly, Holly's specialty really has to do with energy. She's got quite the background. She's a published author. She just published a book called um, Conscious Breathing Workshop. And uh, she was an international global, uh, an international fitness competitor. And she placed eighth in the world. Wow. So as far as, as far as, you know, aliveness, we talk about energy and, uh, you know, nutrition and fitness are part of that. So we were like, we have to talk to this woman. She's also a Reiki master, a yoga instructor, and um, has some clairvoyant gifts. She was able to, you know, read my energy and the, and the my team's energy. It's pretty pretty cool stuff that she talks about. And um, yeah, so Holly's Holly's. We just did the narration for Holly's episode last Friday, and that'll be released in end of October. How cool! And I want to just go back to Tuthill Corporation and you in terms of stepping outside of what one would perceive as the conventional zone to explore topics like this. You know, I I find that very, very interesting, which tells me that the public is hungry for it. Yeah, the reaction, the reaction has been really cool. You know, people keep saying, now is such a good time for a project like this. And, you know, whether it's the political turmoil, or just the, the chaos that we have in life, all the screens and distractions, we're getting pulled in so many directions and not spending time on ourselves. And so that's, that's been the perception of this. It's been so cool to hear stories from community members who've been like, I, instead of asking my kid, you know, how was school today and what's the weather, I'm asking them what they, what they do to feel alive and what makes them feel alive. And teachers who said we've added curriculum to ask the kids what they do to feel alive uh, as part of like a mindfulness segment. I'm like, that is just awesome. That's the impact we want to have. It's, it's, it's really those, how do we spend time to explore what, what are the things that make us feel alive? 
And as far as unconventional goes, yes, I, <laughs> I graduated <laughs> with an electrical engineering degree. I started in IT. And what, what's happened essentially is, uh, luck, luck, luckily for me at Tuthill, I've been able to follow my heart and, and say, these are the things that work that have me feeling more fulfilled. And that tends to be working with people, um, you know, helping them realize their potential and that they can create the life they want to live. And, and that, um, now I get to expand that, you know, beyond Tuthill's employees and into these nonprofit partnerships that we, that we're forming, uh, so that we can bring it into the kids of, you know, the lives of the kids that we're working with and things like that. So it's, it's a very rewarding, fulfilling job. And it's scary because, you know, the fundamental skills that I built my career on are ones that I don't use every day anymore. Well, isn't that a sign of evolution, right? For you? I think so. Uh, oh, absolutely it is. 100%. What's next for the series? So we have a few more uh, episodes in the hopper. We went out and talked to what we were describing as a rock star mom from New Jersey. She's uh, an editor for Good Housekeeping and has kids and, you know, a busy life. So we wanted to kind of get into the life of the busy mom, how do they make time for themselves to explore aliveness for them? We also went and got kind of a contrasting perspective. We went to an addiction center out in Detroit, and um, we wanted to really see, you know, what are the things that people are trying to numb? Because we think about not the, the opposite of aliveness is not death, but it's numbness. You know, what are the things we are doing to not feel our feelings uh, and other things in that arena? So that's another perspective we have. And we also have... Um, an international perspective from Mexico that we went out and got. It was actually the first episode we filmed, but it was difficult because of translation. So that one, uh, we were going out to see the perspective of someone in extreme poverty. What does aliveness look like through their eyes? And so those are those are three more that are kind of filmed and just ready to be narrated, edited, and released. But we're also looking at getting a, a perspective um, out in Japan. We want to get uh, a craftsman, you know, working with working with the hands, we found that one of the themes that has emerged is creativity, you know, so people feel alive when they're creating something, whether it's art or music or food or, you know, there's, there's a theme there. So to really dive into that, we wanted to get kind of that Japanese craftsman perspective out there. Um, and there's a few others that we're exploring right now as well. Well, I just want to go back to the addiction center in Detroit and the idea mm -hmm. of, you know, numbing is really the opposite of aliveness. And I think that taps into the fear, the fear of feeling, right? The, but yet exactly. it's that ability to embrace that fear of feeling those bad feelings that actually contributes to the aliveness. Exactly. It works counterintuitively, right? It does. It does. So people who have hit rock bottom or have experienced something terrible or, you know, the addictions, it's a disease. It's something that's not really controllable, but it's you know, it's, there's choices that lead to that uh, up front. And those choices generally are, I don't want to feel this pain anymore, right? And it could be physical pain. It could be emotional pain. Uh, and that's just a, a mechanism for, for those folks to, to cope with it. So, yeah, it was fascinating. And then here, you know, think about the opioid crisis going on in, in this country and, you know, how much of that there is. So I think there's a lot of people trying to numb a lot of emotion right now. How can we How can we address it in a healthier manner and educate people, especially the kids, you know, as they're growing up and getting exposed to, to things in, you know, junior high, high school, whatever it might be. So they know there are other ways to, to cope with loneliness or pain than substance abuse, for example. Well, I think, you know, it's not about avoiding the negative feeling. It's about learning how to manage the negative feeling, which is a part of the human experience. 
and learn yeah. that we can be resilient in spite of those feelings and it doesn't last forever. I mean, you know, being in, in happiness or bliss or joy doesn't last forever the same way the pain and suffering doesn't last forever. But we think we shouldn't have pain and suffering. Yeah, there's there's some judgment we put on ourselves. It's like, man, something's wrong with me. I shouldn't be feeling this when really we feel all emotions for some reason and there's something to be learned from all emotions. I mean, if I'm sad, why am I feeling sad? What what was it that made me feel sad? If I'm angry, was there one of my values that was stepped on? You know, and and we're creatures that constantly want to learn and and we learn from our mistakes, right? And so mm-hmm. um sometimes those those negative feelings we perceive as mistakes and it's like let's make them go away. I should never feel sad. I should never feel angry or scared. Uh, but really, and Holly talks about this in her upcoming episodes, like how can we embrace our emotions, be aware of them, and then learn from them? Yeah. And that takes courage. It does. It does. Absolutely. Because you know, you don't know what you're going to find. If you look real deep and you know why, you just don't know what you're going to find. And sometimes that is scary. Well, and it, and it plays to the theme of the search for aliveness. Part of the aliveness of the human experience is the gamut of everything. You know, the good, oh. the bad, the, the, the pretty, the ugly, the happy, the sad, the courageous and the fearful. You know, that it, Absolutely. It, that is aliveness, the ability to synthesize all of it. It is. And it sounds like that the episodes that the people that you have interviewed have been successfully able to do that, which makes them heroic to us. Well, they, they have and they haven't. You know, they've, they've at least been able to take a look and absorb what, what it is they experienced and share it with others. And so, like, we talk about the categories of aliveness being purpose, connection, energy, being present and engaged, and then sachet, which is really that full range of human emotions. And, sachet? Um, wait, wait, go back sachet. to that. Sachet? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like I'm swinging my hips in my chair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what people think of. They think of RuPaul. So we're actually going to change the way we describe it. We're going to call it emotional awareness. But sachet is an acronym, S-A-S-H-E-T, sad, angry, scared, happy, excited, tender. It's an ah. acronym used in, in coaching, life coaching. It's like how do we explore all the things we're feeling and not just focus on the good or the bad. So, but yeah, that's funny. When people hear about the documentary, they very quickly do go to, oh, so what makes people feel happy? I'm like, yeah, but that's really just the H in sachet. And it's really only one fifth of all the categories of aliveness that we're exploring. So happiness is absolutely, yes, it's part of it. Um, But aliveness is, it's a lot bigger than just happiness. Well, and happiness is kind of an annoying word. I mean, you know, here we've been doing this <laughs> this this podcast for 10 years and we used to yeah. open with happiness being the annoying yellow smiley face which is wrong, <laughs> you know. We know it's not that, yeah. but when we say happiness, the deeper meaning is below that is really that sense of peace and contentment and, you know, what is right now is just good. It's okay. Mm-hmm. What it, you know, acceptance yeah. of what is is I think a, a component of happiness and, and aliveness. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a couple debates out there too about the difference between happiness and joy, which is probably one that you've had having 10 years of this podcast running. Um, <laughs> All the time we how, talk about it. How would you describe happiness as part of aliveness? For me, it's when I'm able to smile and accept life as it is and not fight against myself to have it be something that it's not, you know, because the resistance to what is makes the unhappiness or the discomfort 
persist. So we when for me, when I can smile on life just as it is and know that it's temporary, all things, and mm-hmm. just be okay and good with the moment, more than good or okay, just accept and say, oh, oh there it is. I'm a witness. I'm witnessing something here and it is going to be temporary and, and move along. That is happiness in a very quietly joyful way. It is. And I love what you said, you know, and not have to fight with myself to make it something it's not. Yeah. That really for me screams authenticity, which as, as we've talked to so many different people and have themes have emerged from this series, authenticity is one that has come up over and over and over again. You know, it's, it's being myself. It's not pretending to be someone else. How can I be myself, do what I do, be with who I'm with, uh, and, and just appreciate that rather than like you said, fight with myself. There's just, there's a theme here for sure. And yes. authenticity is a big one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the sort of the, uh, when you put down the struggle, you know, when you sort of put down all of the weaponry that we as humans take up in arms, you know, whether it's, you know, the walls that we build to keep us separated from others or the masks that we wear to not allow others to see our suffering mm-hmm. or our discomfort. When you put all that aside and you can just be okay, I, that's, that's part of aliveness. It's incredibly powerful. Incredibly yeah. Powerful. The, the authenticity component, you know, obviously there's, there's a vulnerability piece because I'm showing you who I truly am. And then because of that, there's this connection, which is one of the five categories. It yeah. really opens the door for connection when we're our true selves. You know, it's not like trying to, we're not trying to figure each other out. We're coming from our hearts. It's, it's easier to find what we have in common and what we have different and appreciate about each other. If we can be our true selves right out of the gate. And that's not always easy either. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face as humans is if I show you who I really am, you know, if I'm vulnerable with you and you see my challenges, I allow you to see those tender spots that somehow you could not accept me or you would weaponize that knowledge against me, which people, Mm -hmm. we feel that way right? That we're yeah, then unworthy, right? I think Brene Brown talks about this as the cornerstone of her work. She's a, the, the shame mm-hmm. researcher. If I allow you to see me, you will deem me unworthy of love, connection, and belonging, which is ultimately what drives us as humans. Wow. Yep. I just love what you're doing. Let us uh, come back and let's do more. Let's share more about what uh, the Sherpa of Purpose is doing over there with the search oh, for great. aliveness. <laughs> I would love that. That'd yeah. be great. Yeah, because, you know, each year we, we sit down and we think about what do we want to do next. And, you know, this year we'll, is no different. We'll sit down and we'll, we'll figure out what is it that we want to do, you know, in 2020 with this documentary series. You know, do we do a season two? Do we expand it? Do we stop it and focus on something different? Um, and that's that's part of the fun of the, 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 I think the work that my team and I do, it's, we, you know, we've been told go for the no, you know, just how can we get out there and reach as many people as possible? It's not just about eyeballs. How can we make, you know, a positive impact in their lives, raise their awareness of, of, of really aliveness and then their choice to create that life. Uh, and, you know, always open to ideas too. I mean, if you get, if your listeners want to submit any ideas to me, that's cool. Um, you can submit them on the search for aliveness.com. You can, email me. I don't know how you share contact info for uh, guests, but uh, I'm- we're going to go with the search for aliveness.com to connect with Chad Gabriel, the Sherpa of purpose and uh, Tuthill's purpose to wake the world. Go on over there on Twitter at aliveness series on Facebook, the search for aliveness, Instagram, the search for aliveness. And don't forget there is a trailer over on the search for aliveness.com and we'll get a hold of that trailer link and 
circulate it through our social media as well. Chad Gabriel, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Ami Dar and Chad Gabriel, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.